scripture today is the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I have commanded you today. Good morning. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name is Quinn Cools, and I serve as a pastor in training here at Kingsway, which means I get to drink the juice. (laughs) But it is a joy to be with you today and to preach God's word, especially on Mother's Day. My life and ministry have been profoundly shaped by my mom. My mom has a serious joy in following Jesus. Um, Over many years of raising nine children, uh, my mom grew to receive from the Lord the high calling of motherhood. And if she could say something to other moms today, what she would say is this, may you find your delight in Jesus. So whether you're a mother or not, we all need that. We need that delight. We want that delight. And so let's pray that the Lord would help us with that today. Um, Just a short prayer to open our time of the preached word. Pray with me. God, thank you for speaking to us. Help us to not take that for granted that you speak to us. Thank you for your loving kindness toward us, which we do not deserve. Soften our hearts as we behold you, that we might delight in you. 
Amen. On October 18th, 2022, the Golden State Warriors basketball team tipped off the NBA season by defeating the Los Angeles Lakers by 123 points to 109 in their home arena in San Francisco, California. And if you don't know, the Warriors are led by a generational talent, the most prolific shooter in the history of basketball, Stephen Curry. The Warriors have won four championships in the last eight years, and they are the reigning champions. It's a big deal. The Los Angeles Lakers, on the other hand, started off the year by losing that game to the Warriors, and they went on to compile a record in the first 12 games, two wins, 10 losses. What came out was that sports journalists and fans and other teams scoffed at them. This legendary Laker franchise, led by an aging star in LeBron James, couldn't even come close to to a winning record, let alone making the playoffs with a chance of competing for a championship. Teams didn't take the Lakers seriously. But slowly, they started creeping their way back up in the standings. After the all-star mid-break in February, they went on a 16-win to 7-loss run, that put them in a position for the postseason. And their opponents in the first round were highly favored. They were the second best in their conference. They were favored to win and unafraid of this Laker team, but they lost. The Lakers won and advanced to the next round. And over the last two weeks, bringing us to present day, uh, the Lakers met the Warriors in the Western Conference semifinals. And over six games, it became clear that the Warriors were no match. They were unprepared for the Lakers. The Lakers team that just months ago had been casually dismissed, underestimated, counted out, won again, and have advanced to the conference finals. Teams didn't take the Lakers seriously. If I were talking to another basketball fan today, I would say this. I'm learning to take the Lakers seriously. No team has won more finals. No team has had more finals appearances. They have two Hall of Fame players that are leading their team. They have good coaching. They have excellent rotation players. They have a will to win. You have to take them seriously. And so this morning, we're going to think together about how the people of God take the power and presence of sin seriously. Our relationship towards spiritual idolatry must not be casual or complacent. Rather, by beholding God, the grace of God, we take sin seriously and joyfully serve the Lord. The title of today's sermon, if you're taking notes, is Chosen and Set Apart. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 11, addresses how the people of God have been chosen by God to be set apart for God. And so we're going to ask, what does being set apart for God look like? We'll look at two points this morning. The first is our relationship toward the threat of spiritual idolatry. And the second is our relationship with the Lord, our God. Our text 
follows in Deuteronomy 6, the teaching of the Ten Commandments, which is followed by the Shema, the Lord is one, which is followed by the test of prosperity, the sermon that you would have heard last week if you were sitting here. So let's not forget the lessons from that sermon. Grace is the ultimate explanation of your prosperity and abundance. Grace is the sure reward of our faith. Grace is the enduring motive of our obedience. And it's right on the coattails of what Moses has just said about the, of the test of prosperity that he now turns to this question. What is our relationship toward the threat of spiritual idolatry? We again find Moses addressing the people of Israel before they enter Canaan, the land of promise. So God had committed himself to bringing Israel to Canaan. You know, when God commissions Moses, he says this in Exodus 3, I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt and to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. All of these are different people groups in the land of Canaan. The, the kind of larger word to describe them would be Canaanites. And so as Israel comes to the end of their desert wanderings, Moses reaffirms the confidence that we should have in God's promise. Look at what he says in verse 1 and verse 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, in verse 2, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you. Not if, when. So let me ask you, do you have a growing confidence in God's promises, in his fulfillment of his promises? Our battle is often a battle. Our battle to believe is often confused by our own desires, our wants, our expectations, and this clouds our view of what God actually promises us. Do you follow? Think about these things. Think about how many of these things have been promised to you by God. Okay, here's a list. Good health. Stable work. Financial success. A spouse who listens in order to understand. A child who follows hard after Jesus. Those are good things. Those are excellent things. Those are wonderful things. And when those things are taken away, our, our, our confidence in God wavers. Why? Perhaps we find that our faith is tied more to our expectations, our desires, and not to God's very promises. So let Moses guide you to know God's promises and to fight to believe that he will be faithful to those promises. It's not if, but when Israel will enter the land. And we can relate to Israel's fight for faith. When Israel first arrived on the shores of Canaan, they knew the promises of God, but they found that their confidence, it was wavering. Right? They, they looked at the people and the overwhelming prospect of entering the land and, defi and defeating their enemies and establishing a new life there. And it was too much for them. It was beyond their power and their faith wavered. Because why? Why? Because their faith was not resting in the Lord. Their faith was resting in their own power. So who brings them into the land? Look at verse 1 and 2. When the Lord your God 
brings you into the land. Verse 1. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, verse 2, our confidence cannot be in ourselves. (laughs) Our confidence, our faith is in the God who delivers. He delivers and delivers and delivers. So friend, when the Lord makes a promise, he fulfills a promise. So know his promises. Trust his promises will come to pass because it is the Lord your God who completes the work. And what is the work that is going on here in this text? What is the work at hand? It says in verse 1 that the Lord your God brings you into the land. And he clears away the nations before you. And the Lord God gives them over to you, verse 2. And Israel must defeat them to complete destruction and defeat them and shall not show mercy to them. Judgment has come to Canaan. God in his sovereign authority as the creator, the judge of all the earth, clears away and destroys the Canaanites in judgment. That's the prospect here. And that's sobering. There's something about judgment that offends our sensibilities, at least some some of us. The words show them no mercy. Did you catch that? That strikes us as unreasonable unfair. You might ask, is God not merciful? It's a fair question, but let's think through this together. How has God clearly revealed himself to Moses and the people of Israel? Most clearly, Exodus 34 is the most repeated verse in all of scripture. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Don't stop there. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What do we need to know about God? He is eager to show us mercy and grace and to be patient toward us and to be kind toward us and to be faithful toward us and to forgive us. But don't stop reading halfway through in his revelation of himself. He will judge the guilty and reconcile all wrongs. What do we need to know about ourselves? If that's God, who are we? Of Israel, God says that you're a stiff-necked people. (laughs) But it's not just Israel, it's all of us, right? God's word says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is good and does not sin. And Paul makes it clear that like the rest of mankind, we were deserving of wrath, objects of wrath, by nature deserving wrath, and we are without excuse. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Each of us bears the guilt of sin, not just in our conscious words and attitudes and actions, but by our very nature, we carry sin and the guilt of sin. And without a substitute, 
to atone for our sin, our sin will be reconciled in our judgment. And this is the judgment that falls upon the Canaan people who rebelled against God. And and I wonder what your response is when you hear that about God or when you hear that about yourself, right? When you hear that God has revealed himself to be the judge of all things, that he is just, that he has recompense, that he will repay. Maybe, maybe in your, your heart, you, you say, no, <laughs> I don't like that picture of God. And if that's you, friend, understand something. You don't know who God is. You don't know who you are. God is the all glorious one who has revealed himself. This is how he has revealed himself. He is true in all that he says. And who are we? This is true in all that he says. The Holy One judging sinners for their sin should not offend us, but sober us and cause us to take our sin seriously. The Holy One judging sinners for sin should not surprise us. What should astonish us and amaze us is that God is gracious and merciful to any of us. Don't miss this. Israel did not deserve the grace of God. Listen to me. Israel did not deserve the grace of God. Ask yourself this question. What merit did Abraham have, right? Israel's forefather among all the peoples of the earth. What, what, what stood out about Abraham that God was gracious to him and not gracious toward the Canaanites to save them? Joshua 24 tells us from God's perspective, what's going on here. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and this is the key phrase, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abraham's father, was just like the Canaanites, just like you and me. He and his people served other gods. Abraham and his offspring are no more deserving of the land than the Canaanites. The only reason the land belongs to them, that God is giving them, is because the land belongs to God. And he has chosen to be gracious to them. So Deuteronomy 10, just a few chapters ahead when Moses is teaching, he says, behold, to the Lord, your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. It's no injustice. Here's the point. It's no injustice on God's part to judge sinners for their sin. And as he anticipates doing here, but, but the grace of God should, should amaze us here in Deuteronomy 7, God graciously prepares Abraham's offspring as they arrive to the land of promise. And he, and he gives them two instructions here that I want to call out. He says, you make no covenant with them, verse 2, and you shall not intermarry with them, verse 3. So why is God so serious about these prohibitions? What's the big deal? Well, it's not just that he has judgment in store for a pagan people. If that's what you're reading and that's the end of it, you're missing something. Okay? He's guarding his people from something. 
Remember the test of prosperity. There is a spiritual danger that is present in Canaan. And we must not miss it. Look at verse 4. Why should you make no covenant with them? And why should you not intermarry with them? Verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and, you, and he would destroy you quickly. That's the predictable and inevitable outcome. When you play with fire, you're going to get burned. We're called to an exclusive relationship with God, right? God is one and there's a, there's a oneness in his very essence and he has called us to be one with him. And Moses just declared that a few minutes before in this sermon. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And so what happens when God's people covenant themselves, commit themselves with those who are not God's people and intermarry with them? What happens when you intermingle body and soul? Well, the oneness of our unity with God is desecrated. Paul makes God's instruction explicitly clear in the New Testament. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Why? Our passage tells us, Deuteronomy 7 verse 4, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So let me give you a scenario. Maybe you're single and you're looking for someone to date and perhaps marry. And you meet someone that you might like to spend some more time with. Uh, but you, you learn that they do not walk in obedient faith to Jesus. So the question is, what do you do? Do you participate in a dating relationship or do you not? Well, remember, they would turn you away from following me to serve other gods. So in, in matters of Christian living, we, we have these bright line issues, right? What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is evil? Very clear biblically, right? We all understand this. On the other hand, we have some issues that are related to Christian liberty, right? It, it, there's not a clear bright line. So we have to apply some discernment, some wisdom, and we call them wisdom issues. So here's the question. Is dating an unbeliever a wisdom issue? For the sake of your soul, say no. That, that's the point here. Finding the right kind of person to, to marry and date is, is not easy. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying that it gets easier with age. I think it gets harder. But perhaps you've, you've dated other believers and you, find you haven't found the one, right? Or, or maybe there just aren't other single believers, people who are running hard after Jesus in your age group, in your community right now. And so if you're not careful, subtle justifications will start to set in, right? God doesn't want me to be alone. Oh, God prohibits marrying an unbeliever, not dating an unbeliever. I feel this is good for me. <laughs> um, this is true not just for you if you're a single considering marriage, by the way. This is for you as a parent, dads and moms. When you're considering the relationships 
that your young people are entering into, you need to think very seriously about what is good. What does God define as good for your son or daughter? Because do you hear the serpent's deception in these subtle justifications? Did God actually say? And where the word of the serpent deceives, the word of the Lord guards us. Because they would turn you away from following me, he says, to serve other gods. So what's the point? In our basketball illustration, take the Lakers seriously. Take the danger of spiritual idolatry seriously. We must not presume upon God's mercy because if we turn away from the living God, then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against us and he would destroy us. But God has shown us mercy and graciously guarded us from spiritual idolatry. We are not passive bystanders. We are active participants in this guarding against temptation and sin. You need to get in the game. If you're not in the game, get in the game. Look at verse five, which closes this section. This is how God instructs Israel to get in the game. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break their altars and dash to pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. So the people of of Canaan were, were pagan. They had their own idol worship. They had their own uh, elements that they uh, included that were significant to their spiritual worship, right? Their life, their culture. They had carved images. They erected um, structures uh, like like stone structures. They would have, uh, they would have crafted uh, images of idols and put them up for the people to see. They had, they had uh, trees and, and wooden images that they carved that were sacred to their gods and goddesses, right? So none of these things could remain among the people of God if they were to remain one with the Lord. So what does God's word instruct them to do? Verse five, look at there again. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall, let's look for the verbs, break down their idols and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. That's radical stuff, right? That's radical stuff. So listen, if the altars and pillars and carved images are what was significant to the spiritual life of this pagan culture, here's my question. What do you think is significant to our culture's way of worship? What's the 21st century American version of idols and ashram? Let's, let's think about some examples. The lottery, credit card offers and get rich quick schemes say something. What do they say? Money is God. Political fundraising, advertising, And language in the media, what does it say? Power is God. Sexually explicit songs and shows and website, they say something, they scream something. Sex is God. What you wear, what you drive, what you post on social media, often shout, my glory is God. 
right? Our culture is full of things that represent our gods. It's been said before by Matthew, sex is a good gift and a terrible God. Same is true for money and power and honor and you name it. Terrible gods. So let's get radical. Let's think, what would it look like to break down, to dash in pieces, to chop down, to burn the things that would threaten your life, that would threaten to turn you away from the living God? Let's get radical. Let's think about this. Would you young person, disable your social media account and remove the app? Would you stop watching your favorite TV show because of the kind of content that's in that TV show? Would you install accountability and porn blocking software on your devices? Would you give money to a food pantry or to a missionary instead of buying a third personal vehicle? Like this is, this is when the preaching moment gets personal. <laughs> and, and that's what I'm trying to do because that's exactly what God's doing through Moses here. He's preaching a sermon and he's saying, we have to get radical about this. So while God's not calling us to drive out a people today, he is calling us to drive out the things that represent those other gods in your life. And you need to get radical about it. Jesus was radical about it. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It would be better for you to lose one of your members than that the whole body would be thrown into hell. Right? He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it into the fire because it'd be better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. So if you were to take an inventory of your life, Where do you see raised altars for the gods of our culture? With your time, with your money, with what you look at, with what you talk about, with what you listen to, where are those raised altars in your life? And what are you willing to do to guard your soul against falling other gods? In verses one through five, the Lord graciously guards us He helps us take seriously the danger of spiritual idolatry. And what's more in the coming verses, where we'll turn now, verses 6 through 11 ground our motivation for faithful obedience as those who have been chosen and set apart. What is the most important thing about you? In a Twitter bio world where you're only given 160 characters to give a definition of who you are, You might describe yourself as the husband to Christy, the father to Porter and Charlie, you know, a pastoral resident at Kingsway. Okay, that's strangely, weirdly personal. Um, (laughs) Beekeeper, yes, yes. Uh, But you might list your associations and and roles and education and, and things like that, because these things say something about who you are, your identity, what you've been shaped to be. But if you were to peel back the onion on all of those different roles and education and responsibilities and whatever that may be, what's at the core of who you are? Who are you? What's the most important thing about you? If you're a Christian, verse six gives us the answer. Look there. For you are a people. 
holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that you are an individual, holy to the Lord. He doesn't say you are a group of individuals, holy to the Lord. He says you are a people. Why is that significant? Because belonging to God unquestionably means belonging to the people of God. In the New Testament, we see this clearly articulated in the language that we are the body of Christ. We cannot be united to the head, who is Christ, without being united to the body, which is the church. This is why we covenant together in local churches as members. We belong to the church. We belong to the people of God. The reason for radical relationship toward the threat of spiritual idolatry is this. We are a people holy to the Lord. Not just a people, but a people holy to the Lord our God. God is holy. He's incomprehensibly glorious. He's unique in the splendor of his majesty. So to be holy to the Lord or for the Lord our God is to be wholly devoted to him to be exclusively given to him, to know him, to know that he is one and to love him with all heart, soul, and strength. Out of all the people on the earth, we are the people who belong to God. We are God's treasured possession. Exodus 19 is where where God tells his people, he says, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, here's the promise, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's amazing. And we see the New Testament fulfillment of this in Jesus, right? In first Peter two, verse nine, for you who are in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now in Christ you've received mercy. Apart from the grace and mercy of God, what are we? We are those stiff-necked people, right? We are the unrighteous sinners following after other gods, just like Abraham's father, right? Like the rest of mankind, we are by nature objects of wrath, deserving of wrath without excuse. We cannot make ourselves holy. And without a substitute to atone for our sin, our sin will be reconciled in our judgment But God, once we'd not received mercy, but now in Jesus, we have received mercy because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We've received mercy instead of judgment. And what a wonder that is. It's not anything to do with us, by the way. It has everything to do with God. Look at verse seven. It it was not because you... (laughs) It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you for you are the fewest of all the people. There's nothing internal to Israel that makes her lovable and worthy of God's grace and worthy of being chosen. Israel was not great in number. 
quite the opposite. She was the fewest of the people. So what is that? What's the point? It's all grace. There's nothing inside me. Let's locate not just in Israel, but here in this room, me. There's nothing inside me that makes me lovable and worthy of being chosen by God. Do you believe that? It's all grace. In fact, by implication, we have no power and no motivation to choose God or to choose to be holy to God. And, and so God has to make us holy. And that's exactly what he does, right? Ephesians 1 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. John 15, 16 kind of puts the nail in the coffin on this, by the way. You did not choose me. (laughs) I chose you. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all the people. Look at verse eight, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is the hinge point of the whole message. Why does God show us mercy and grace in Christ? Because he loves you. You know your struggles. You know your weaknesses. You know your temptations. You know your sin. And there might be times late at night when your mind just runs and reminds you of all the ways that you've failed. You may feel, in fact, that you are the least deserving of all the people. And this is good news to you. God has shown you mercy and grace because he loves you. Because he loves you. Not because of your good behavior or what you bring to God, but because he loves you. I love standing up here and looking in people's eyes and being able to tell them God loves you. That's an amazing opportunity because he loves you and is keeping his oath. God has made an oath bound promise ever since his promise to Abraham, his covenant with Abraham before Israel crossed the the Jordan river into Canaan generations before he made a promise, an oath. And God takes that really seriously All the way back in Genesis 15, we read that on the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates and on and on. It says God reaffirmed this covenant and added specific promises to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt from the hand of their oppressors. So so to Abraham and to his offspring and to Moses and to this generation that hears this message from Moses, God has made covenantal promises. But here's the thing. Israel has totally failed their end of the deal, right? Right? Two two examples. The golden calf situation. (laughs) Like God brings them out of Egypt and then almost immediately afterward, they're making a golden idol to be some sort of representation of what has saved them, right? That's craziness, right? Or or the second one, when they first came to the shores of Canaan, 
The spies came back and what was their report? God said, go. And they said, we're not going to (laughs) go, right? He said, go. And he said, we're not able to go up against this people for they are stronger than we are. Right. Because it's the Lord that brings you. It's the Lord that will drive out that people. It's the Lord that will complete this. It is the Lord's oath to you. Believe his promises. Israel, Kingsway, Christian. (laughs) So one commentary puts it this way. Although by reason of Israel's neglect and breach of covenant, he might have been released from his obligations to Israel, yet God continued to be faithful. (laughs) So here's the beauty of the grace of our God. When we are faithless, he is faithful, right? What is Israel's greatest story? The greatest story in the people of Israel is the Exodus, right? The Exodus out of Egypt. And we see this right here in verse eight. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's, that's the greatest story for the people of Israel. What, what is that story for us as Christians? It's, it's the greater Exodus, the greater deliverance, the greatest redemption, the greatest fulfillment of this. And it's found, I, I love Colossians 1, you could go so many places in the New Testament, but Colossians 1 says it so plainly. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what is your story as a Christian? What is, what's the most important thing about you if you were to identify what's at the core If you had one story to tell with your life, what would that story be? It's found here in verse eight. He redeemed you from the house of slavery. That's the most important thing about you if you're a Christian. But what if you're not a Christian today? You might be joining us today uh, with family or with a friend, or you might be a young person who's growing up with parents who love and follow Jesus, but that's not you, at least not yet. What do you need to know about God? What do we all need to know about God at this point in time? Look at verse nine. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Yahweh is God, the one true God, the living God, the God who created and sustains the world, the God who created and sustains your life and breath. That very truth makes a claim on your life. You are not your own. So know therefore that God is God. Sex is not God. Power is not God. You are not God. God is God and he is the faithful God. He keeps his promises. When he says he will pick up that gallon of milk on his way home from work, he will do it. He will not forget it. (laughs) He will fulfill his promises. His steadfast love, his loving kindness is toward us in Christ. So much of our lives get entangled with the lust of the flesh and the lust of our mind Our pride blinds us to the glory of God and the wretchedness of our sinful state apart from Christ. We live with a paralyzing fear of what other people think of us instead of how God thinks of us. 
Oh, that we would fear the Lord and honor the Lord and follow and serve the Lord. Kingsway, you are known, hope you know this, as a church that takes following Jesus seriously. Somebody told me that just this week. And that's a distinct grace that he has given our church. If you're a member of our church, you've identified yourself and there's been a public affirmation from the people of God that you belong to God and therefore you belong to the people of God. So what does it look like to be set apart for God? Well, here's two examples from our church covenant. When you become a member here at Kingsway, you make covenantal promises of our responsibilities toward one another. So here's two examples, one of what we require of ourselves and one of what we expect of one another. We will fight for personal holiness through private devotion to the word and prayer, living carefully in the world that we may be continually conformed to the image of Christ. Keep doing that. We will diligently exhort and encourage and admonish one another with a spirit of gentleness and meekness in our battle against sin. Don't stop doing that with one another. We need that. Don't be passive about this. Diligently fight, guard your soul and the life of the body. What happens if you don't? What happens if you just leave that up to those who are more mature, the older saints, the pastors? What happens if you do not submit to King Jesus in obedient faith in your life? Look at verse 10. And God repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Without a substitute to atone for our sin, we will have our sin reconciled in judgment on us. We will bear that. But the good news is that we don't have to bear that because Jesus bore that on the cross, right? For everyone who embraces him by faith, we do have a substitute, Christ has atoned for our sins. Our sin has been reconciled in judgment on Jesus. That debt has been paid. We've been freed from the bondage of sin. We've tasted of his kindness. And now the question is, what will you do? What will you do? As he graciously leads you in this life and promises to work all things for good in Christ, Are you willing to trust him? Are you you willing to obey him? Are you willing to look at, at every area of your life and get radical about following King Jesus? To be careful to do his commandments and his statutes and his rules that he commands you. Listen, What what God says here, what we need to know about him is know this. Know therefore that I am God. God is God. And yet know that God is faithful. And know that his promises are, find their yes in Christ. He is worthy of all trust and obedience. Why? Because he's been merciful and gracious. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. 
Teams didn't take the Lakers seriously this year. And I don't know if they're going to win the world championship or not, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm learning to take them seriously. So consider your relationship towards spiritual idolatry. Is it casual? Is it so-so? Is it complacent? Or are you taking your sin seriously? Are you taking the threat, the danger of spiritual idolatry seriously? In grace, God has set his love on you. He's chosen you and he set you apart because he loves you. Let's pray. God, you are glorious in the splendor of your holiness. Thank you for speaking to us this morning by your word. Forgive us for not taking the threat of spiritual idolatry seriously. God, I pray that you would show us, expose in our lives the areas that threaten spiritual idolatry, where we are in danger, and soften our hearts to see temptations and sins. God, more than anything, we we want to leave this morning thanking you for your provision of Jesus who bore your perfect judgment of our sin on the cross that we might receive the flow of grace and mercy from your hand, your feet, your side. Help us to remember our story, your story. Just as the old hymn goes, ever since my faith, I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Amen.